Say it with me this morning. His love endures forever. Amen. Y'all did that well. Praise God. As we uh, come into this sermon series on spiritual warfare, we are reminded that God is real, God is working in our midst, God is powerful and active. And I have to ask you this morning, can you see his kingdom around you? This sermon series is all about God's kingdom within this spiritual war that is happening around us. Today we're going to be in Colossians chapter, thir- uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Uh, let's begin in a word of prayer. Father God, I can't say thank you enough for your powerful work in each one of our lives, in the work of the church here. And Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, just moving, moving within our midst, And as we worship and honor your name today, we also ask that through the power of your spirit that you will open up our hearts and our minds to your word. Father, we believe that there's spiritual war happening right now. We ask that the power of you and your risen Christ will activate within our lives so that we can truly understand your word. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds to your truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a really neat story in 2 Kings chapter 6 that I have to share with you this morning. Many of you have heard the prophet Elijah, one of the greatest of all prophets. Well, his uh, successor was Elisha, the prophet, who was just as powerful and just as good for God. And he had this servant by the name of Gehazi, And we're told that in 2 Kings chapter 6, an army from the king of Aram had risen up and gone to war with the Israelites. The king of Aram, he conferred with all of his generals and brought them together and said, you know, we should really do a sneak attack on these Israelites. And so they determined they would camp in such and such place. But God told Elisha exactly where that place was. And Elisha told the king, and then they would go and foil their plans. I mean, this enraged the king of Aram. He knew for sure that there was a spy within his inner circle. They said, no, there's no spy. Y'all need to go and take a look at this Elisha. He's the one who's telling exactly where we're camping out so that we can sneak up on them. And so the king of Aram in all of his fury gathered his whole army and they encamped all around this city called Dothan. Elisha and his servant Gehazi were sleeping sound. Early that morning, Gehazi went out of his camp, went out of his house And he looked around and saw this giant army surrounding the city. He went, obviously, to Elisha to let him know what had happened, that they were surrounded, that their death was imminent. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Elisha said, Don't be afraid. 
those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And we're told that Elisha got on his knees and he prayed to God that Gehazi's eyes would be open. And Gehazi stepped out of the house again, and this time he not only saw the army of Aram, but he saw this giant flaming chariots and flaming horses, the army of God. And I love this story because just when all hope is lost, just when Gehazi thought his days were numbered, God opened his eyes to see something bigger happening. Here's another cool part of the story. If I was God in that instant, I would snap my fingers and get those flaming horses and flaming chariots and just wipe out the army, right? But he chooses a different path. So Elisha goes to the generals, and on his way to the generals of the king of Aram, the uh, God struck every single one of the king's uh, army blind. And so Elisha goes to that general and he says, hey man, you got the wrong city. Elisha's not here. And they're blind, mind you. And so Elisha leads them to the capital city of Israel where all of Israel's army is ready for them. He leads that giant army away from Dothan to Samaria, the, 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 the capital of Israel. And I'm thinking, yeah, now God's people are about to raise their swords. And the king of Israel said, should I strike them dead? And Elisha said, no, this is what I want you to do. I want you to throw a big feast for this army. How weird is that? They threw a big feast for this army. Their eyes were opened to see all of Israel's army feeding them, not killing them, feeding them. They never saw the flaming horses. They never saw the, the flaming chariots. And they never saw Israel raise their swords. They fed them. And that day, the war ended. I tell you this story because it asks all of the right questions. Is God present when evil is surrounding us? Amen. Is there a spiritual battle happening in the unseen world? I think Gehazi and Elisha could tell you, yeah. And for our conversation today, is God concerned about what's happening here on earth? Let's read this text out of Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says... That the Father, God the Father, 
has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And there may be many of us here today who are wondering, when did that happen? I don't remember any dominion of darkness that I can see with my physical eyes. It sounds like something out of a Lord of the Rings novel or maybe something from Harry Potter. So what does Paul mean when he says dominion of darkness? You see, both Paul and Peter use this word rescue in relation to being rescued from evil stuff happening in the world. Paul specifically mentions in another letter how people were trying to kill him. And he said, God rescued me from that. Peter uses that word to connect the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember that story? God was going to destroy that city and God rescued Lot. And now here in Colossae, it may not have been the center of evil like Sodom and Gomorrah, but evil existed. And it existed much like it does today. In Jesus' day, the, the dominion of darkness would have included demon possession, poverty, sickness and disease, racism between the Sumerians and the Israelites, exploitation of the poor, and certainly the, the legalism of the religious elites. How does Jesus address the dominion of darkness? Well, do you remember? He rescued people, right? He casted out demons. He healed the sick and the diseased. He broke through barriers of race. He overturned money changers who were exploiting the poor. He demanded repentance from the burdensome religion of the religious elites. And he called the common man to the burden of grace. Amen? And therefore, Jesus even said himself in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Amen? But in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus doesn't condemn the world. Jesus saves the world. And Paul doesn't only say that the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, which he's done in his son Jesus Christ, but he says specifically that he has brought us into the kingdom. What does it mean to be brought into the kingdom of the Son? In the Greek, to be brought literally means to transfer. It means that we have moved from one situation to another. The situation of evil and hatred and injustice, it's no longer our journey. We now, beat, we now march to the beat of a different drum. And Paul himself says earlier in Colossians 1 that the Colossians would bear fruit. You see, this new kingdom that God has made up of men and women from Colossae, they are people who are going to live out this new journey. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. This is a new way of life. It's a new journey. It's been transferred from the old journey of sin and hatred and evil to this new journey of bearing good fruit. And I'm telling you, folks, that, that's the journey I want. That's the journey that, that I want to be on. That's the movement that I want to be part of. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we see Jesus, his ministry, starting out from the very beginning. And what does it say he did? He went throughout Galilee, we're told, right there at the beginning of his ministry. And he taught in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He healed diseases. He healed sickness all among their people. The good news of the kingdom. And certainly the good news here is that we no longer have to live that way. We no longer have to live in a society, in, in, or not society, but we don't have necessarily have to live anymore in the way of life that is full of evil and hatred. Do you see the kingdom and what that looks like? There's an author and scholar by the name of Cornelius Plantinga. And he wrote the webbing together of God and humans and creation and justice, fulfillment and delight is really what the Hebrew word shalom means. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or even a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means a universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a rich state of affairs which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspire joyful wonder as its creator God opens a door and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The kingdom of God seems to be a place where people, God's people live in shalom the way things ought to be. It's a way of life that is in stark contrast with the kingdom of darkness. It's a way of life that assists in making things right. Let's take a moment to translate this ancient biblical concept into our everyday life. By a show of hands, who here have ever heard someone say, that's not fair? Yeah, everybody? That's not fair. I mean, it was just a, it wasn't too long ago. In fact, it was last week that I heard Charlie say, that's not fair. It was, it was bedtime. He came to me, said, can we stay up for one more, so, one more show? I said, no, you need to go to bed. And what he heard me say is Charlie needs to go to bed. Eli can stay up as long as he wants. That wasn't what I said at all. But he responded with, that's not fair. And even at an earlier age, 
I remember Eli taking a toy and Charlie saying, that's not fair. Why is it that even at the earliest of ages, children have this natural ability to recognize when something is not fair? Why is that? And think about it. The longing doesn't go away. The whole state of Kentucky is screaming, that's not fair. (laughs) That's not fair. The news told a story this week about a young man from Georgia traveled up to Knoxville last weekend to be here for his daughter's birthday. He was shot and killed. And our souls cry. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not good. And as we think about how Jesus reacted to fairness, we think of stories. Do you remember the story of Jesus when he was traveling through this region, this Gentile region, and he, he looked across and he saw there was a man living among the tombs. And he was... He was naked, and he was scratching himself with rocks, and he was tormenting his body. This demon had taken over his life. And Jesus said, that's not fair. He healed him. Right then and there. Do you remember the story when the religious elites caught a woman in adultery? And they dragged her to the center of the city. And all these men tried to trap Jesus and pointed out her sin for everyone to see. Jesus said, that's that's not fair. And he gave that woman dignity. He gave her worth. You know what else he did? He freed her from the dominion of darkness. Right? Right? He gave her a new and better life. Christianity has become nothing more than following rules and showing up to church once a week, but that's not what Jesus preached. He preached, he preached repent for the kingdom of God. It's here. It's a new way of being. It's a new way of life. It's Shalom, where you live and work and play. It's Gehazi when his eyes are opened and he saw God is working right here in our midst. And he cares even about me. When Gehazi came out that that house and he didn't see the flaming chariots, He behaved a certain way, didn't he? He acted really in fear. But when his eyes were opened, oh, everything changed. Can you see the kingdom? If so, let it affect you the way that it affected Jesus and the way that he lived We move into our time of communion. 
And I really want to zero in on verse 14 because the last 20 minutes we haven't even talked about verse 14, but it's so very important because Paul says we have redemption in Jesus. And redemption's a church word, right? We use that word a lot in church, and it's lost some of its meaning. So let's get back to the real meaning of redemption. It means the release of a captive due to payment. The release of a captive due to payment. Evil and darkness and sin, it's not just prevalent in our world. It's taking people captive. It's holding people hostage. But Jesus, ah, Jesus, he paid the price, therefore redeeming us. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus died. He paid that price, and captivity of sin no longer has us. And that's who we worship this morning. As we eat from that bread, as we drink from the juice, we declare in unity that Jesus Christ has redeemed us. And as we sing this next song, consider our need for redemption. Let us pray. Father God, we uh, come this morning recognizing that the old way of life, the old way of sin, the dominion of darkness no longer has any of us captive. That, Father, we have been freed because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed. And as we gather around the table this morning and as we eat the bread and drink the juice, my prayer is that all of us will keep that in mind, that we'll meditate on that, and that we will worship you for just that reason. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.